0: This is PolyOptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. PolyOptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. Well, welcome back, folks, from your brief Memorial Day hiatus as we move past an all-too-chilly spring into a hopefully temperate and hurricane-free summer climate change permitting. I was on Eastern Long Island on Memorial Day, watching the kids drive a miniaturized John Deere tractor up and down the lawn when the breaking news came in over the iPhone. President Obama arrives in a surprise visit to troops in Afghanistan. Now, this is the kind of message I've received before over key holidays over the past 10 years, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Memorial Day. President Obama and President Bush before him, making the midnight run from Andrews Air Force Base under the cloak of darkness and secrecy to corkscrew down an Air Force One to one fortified strip or another. Always a somewhat hairy adventure. Then there's the president, dressed down in his Air Force-issue A-2 bomber jacket, the presidential seal over his right breast, his name, in case anyone didn't know it, on a Velcro patch over his left... The advance team's been there for days, aligning the camouflage netting just so to give viewers back home that outpost feel. But behind the scenes, the trained eye will see, it's a giant hangar outfitted for the occasion. Soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division arrayed on a coral riser behind him, resplendent in their olive drab BDUs, a massive American flag framing the scene. That, that surprise visit to Troops 101, and this White House executed it as well as most. Let's hear a little bit of how it sounded at Bagram Air Force Base this week.
0: You know, last year marked a major milestone. For the first time, Afghan forces took the lead to secure their own country. And today you're in a support role, helping to train and assist Afghan forces. For many of you, this will be your last tour in Afghanistan. And by the end of this year, the transition will be complete and Afghans will take full responsibility for their security and our combat mission will be over. America's war in Afghanistan will come to a responsible end.
1: This, believe it or not, was President Obama's sixth visit to Afghanistan, coming on the heels of a tough week for the Veterans Administration and an even worse one this week with Secretary Eric Shinseki under continued fire for the growing scandal involving delays in care to veterans in need. One has to have great admiration for Secretary Shinseki for his Army service and courage at various points in his career in uniform, but as a polyoptics communicator, he leaves a lot to be desired. Here he is in his testimony before Congress a few weeks ago.
0: Any allegation... Any adverse incident like this um, makes me as, makes me mad as hell. I could use stronger language here, Mr. Chairman, but in deference to the committee, I won't. If there's anything that gets me uh, angrier than just hearing allegations is to hear you tell me that we have folks that can't be truthful because they think the system doesn't allow it.
1: Mad as hell, Secretary Shinseki. So here, using the same phrase, is Peter Finch in the 1976 classic, Network.
0: We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we
1: don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you
0: alone.
1: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window,
0: open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore.
1: So, dear listeners, a recommendation. Somewhere in the middle of those two performances, maybe veering a little bit more toward Peter Finch than Eric Shinsecki should we properly express the outrage of what's gone on at the VA over the last few years. Now, back to the president's trip in Afghanistan. What didn't go so well on the trip was another element that the NSC staff always lays on, the high-level briefing for the commander-in-chief. Again, at Bagram, it had all the elements that we like to put in these conversations-slash-photo-ops. The camo covers the tables along with the maps, the flag is on the wall, and the briefers prepare their PowerPoints. There's a mixture of civilian and military in the briefings. Ambassador James Cunningham was there to the president's right, and General Joseph Dunford was there to his left. That's the shot, diplomatic and DOD personnel working together. Photographers like Doug Mills of the New York Times get let in for a minute or so, something they call the pool spray, that creates the right art for the paper along with the story. The White House Press Office is busy at this moment, too helping the pool of reporters understand the substance through background briefings by people that are known as senior administration officials, and making clear who was and wasn't in the room. But this time, they were a bit too clear. I'm a subscriber to the White House Press Office's feed of official statements, transcripts, and pool reports. It keeps me as well as informed as most members of the White House Press Corps, and Out on Long Island, looking at my iPhone on Monday afternoon, about 1 p.m., I received a pull report from Scott Scott Wilson via the uh, White House press office. He's the chief White House correspondent for The Washington Post. This was a fix of an earlier pull report to correct a number of typos and misspellings from Wilson's first dispatch. But it included something else. A manifest from the president's briefing. It had a number of names you'd expect from the White House including National Security Advisor Susan Rice, her deputy Ben Rhodes, and John Podesta, who's the counselor to the president. But it also had one more name, whose name I'll omit here, but whose title was Chief of Station, as in the Central Intelligence Agency, Chief of Station. That, my friends, was a no-no. Here's how CNN reported it a day later.
0: Sources say the review will focus on how just after the president arrived at Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan, the system to protect the identity of his top spy there broke down, allowing the name of the CIA station chief to be distributed to a pool reporter and then to 6,000 other journalists by email. Tonight, intelligence sources say the CIA operative, who CNN is not naming, is now a marked man, and that foreign intelligence services are most likely looking into his professional history to see who he's come into contact with.
1: Now, you'll have to be a real Afghanistan hand to know whether the CIA's station chief in Kabul is really a perfectly kept secret. Often it's the lower level operators who live a completely clandestine life. But we have to respect the operational security of the agency's mission there. You go back 30 years, to 1985, to the story of William Buckley, our station chief in Beirut, who was kidnapped in March of 1984 from his apartment building as he prepared to leave for work. He remained in captivity by Hezbollah for 15 months, tortured beyond belief, as those that imprisoned him in a hopelessly small space sought to know the names of those that informed for the agency in the Middle East. His death was announced on October 4, 1985, But his body wasn't returned to the United States until the end of 1991. Those are the stakes involved in serving as the station chief in a hostile territory. A lot to think about on a Memorial Day. When their names are revealed inadvertently in a pool report, the best course of action is probably a desk job back at Langley. But what comes next in this case, beyond tightening up the process for sharing the names of the president's briefers, we'll probably never know. And that, my friends, is probably all for the best. Back on friendly soil this week, Brian Williams of NBC News scored the best get of the year so far, creating an hour-long primetime interview with Edward Snowden from Moscow in a move that offered new validation for the role of the network anchor in an age when we've been wondering about the continued relevance of that role. Here's a little bit from that interview, an eye-opening outing for those who've been under the impression until now that Snowden was just a young, low-level analyst. I may have lost my ability to travel but I've gained the ability to go to sleep at night, to put my head on the pillow, and feel comfortable that I've done the right thing, even when it was the hard thing. If after a year, they can't show a single individual who's been harmed in any way
0: by this reporting, is it really so grave? Is it really so serious? And can we really trust those claims without scrutinizing them?
1: An eye-opening outing from Moscow indeed. Those of you who tuned in a few weeks ago for our conversation with Frontline's Michael Kirk, will remember the detail with which Kirk was able to show us the program, the National Security Agency's post-9-11 effort to gather phone and internet records of American citizens, a program that Snowden's revelations through Glenn Greenwald of, of The Guardian stunningly made public last year. If you haven't seen Frontline's two documentaries on the United States of Secrets, I strongly encourage you to watch them online. And also this week, the great author, poet, and civil rights activist Maya Angelou passed away at 86. She published seven autobiographies, three books of essays, and several books of poetry, and is credited with a list of plays, movies, and television shows spanning more than 50 years. 21 years ago, in 1993, I was in the audience of the U.S. Capitol as Dr. Angelou recited her poem On the Pulse of Morning" at the inauguration of President William Jefferson Clinton, the first poet to make an inaugural recitation since Robert Frost at John F. Kennedy's inauguration in 1961. I'll always remember her stirring words. Come, you may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny, but seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. You, created only a little lower than the angels, have crouched too long in the bruising darkness have lain too long face down in ignorance, your mouths spilling words armed for slaughter. The rock cries out to us today, you may stand upon me, but do not hide your face. It seems fitting, with the passing of Maya Angelou, to use this episode of Polyoptics to share with you our conversation from earlier this year with Todd Purdom, author of An Idea Whose Time Has Come, the behind-the-scenes story of the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. First, a little context. My wife Amy and I had the pleasure recently of seeing Breaking Bad star Bryan Cranston in All the Way, the Broadway play about Lyndon Johnson's tumultuous first full year in office, 1964, when the shadow of JFK's assassination hung over the country and the civil rights struggle burned toward the approaching freedom summer and the killings in Mississippi of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner. Cranston's anguish as LBJ flew from the stage as we watched him dealing with Martin Luther King, J. Edgar Hoover, and reluctant members of Congress grudgingly moving toward passage of Kennedy's civil rights legislation, known on Capitol Hill as H.R. 7152. The real inside story of the fight, to, as Johnson said, write it in the books of law, is the subject of Todd's new book, An Idea Whose Time Has Come, published on April 1st by Henry Holt. Todd is a contributing editor of Vanity Fair and a senior writer for Politico, but we go way back to when he was White House correspondent for the New York Times, a Johnny Apple disciple where he spent 20 years, a wonderful few of them in my company at the White House. We shared thousands of miles together on Air Force One, and it's my pleasure to reunite with him here on Polyoptics. Todd Purdom, welcome to the program.
0: Glad to be with you, Josh.
1: Todd Purnham, you have been sort of on this book hiatus for a long time, writing an idea whose time has come. Why this issue and why a book now?
0: Well, my editor at Vanity Fair, Colin Murphy, a wonderful man who used to be the managing editor of The Atlantic Monthly for 20 years and and is just uh, interested in everything, had been after me for some time to write a book. And about in 2011... He realized the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act was upon us, and it's a sort of story that is almost always a chapter in someone else's book or a section. It's it, it there really are not uh, many one-volume treatments of the of the passage of the law itself, and he thought it might make a good uh, you know almost what. To, They'd call on television a bottle episode, like a courtroom drama, really. And in the end, I did a little bit of research, and I decided that it was a fascinating story, that I didn't know nearly as much about it as I thought, that what I thought I knew, namely that the bill was passed in response to Kennedy's assassination and because of Martin Luther King's demonstrations and because of Lyndon Johnson's peerless legislative skills. That's all true, but the full story is even more interesting and it involves tremendous bipartisan cooperation and some largely forgotten Republican figures who were absolutely crucial on the road to passing the bill.
1: And we're going to get to them. Um, and, you know, you, you said it's always the chapter in someone else's book. It's also, taught I think, the, the legislative battle and debate behind the scenes against the images that we all know so well, both the black and white still pictures of Bull Connor's dogs in Birmingham and the, and the lunch counter sit-ins, so much of the polyoptic imagery that drove people to action 1961, 1962, 1963, and then 64. As you were beginning to research the book, how did you re-familiarize yourself with the images and, and visuals of that day?
0: Well, yes, I mean, it is true that the outside um, images were absolutely vital in arousing public consciousness, arousing the opinion of the public that something had to be done about this problem, uh, arousing the attention of President Kennedy himself, who remarked, to a group of visitors to the White House on the morning that that picture, with the famous picture of the snarling police dog in Birmingham, appeared on the front page of the New York Times, uh, you know, he said uh, it was a terrible, terrible uh, picture and a terrible blow to the country's image. So I, I think th- those are indelible images stamped in our consciousness. And of course, in those days, you couldn't take pictures. In uh, there were no television cameras, no C-SPAN in either chamber of the Congress. So uh, reconstructing what those rooms looked and felt like was a bit of a challenge at times.
1: It wasn't really Todd Purdom until last summer watching The Butler and watching Hollywood really redo uh, the water cannons and the dogs and the lunch counter humiliations that you that the old black and white images really came back for me. Was that what did you think of The Butler last summer?
0: Well, I mean, it was a remarkable story. I love the performances. I love the acting. The one thing that my wife and I both found a little bit troubling was that the compression of the, and the sort of fictional aspect of his son, who was present at every single aspect of the civil rights movement from, you know, the Lorraine Motel on the night before Dr. King was killed to, um, you know, he was in the thick of everything that ever happened. And we understood why, for dramatic reasons, that compression was created. But it almost, I think it turned that part of the film slightly into a cartoon but it is it is interesting to note that a person like john kennedy's primary exposure to black people had been from his own black servants starting with his valet in college at harvard another valet whom he had when he came to washington and who stayed with him till the last morning of his life and uh, and a, a black doorman at the white house named preston bruce they went uh, up on the roof of the white house together lean out the window to try to look at the march in washington and hear what they could hear from the mall rather than going to see it um, the president, of course did not participate and, and did not want to speak there, did not want to be seen as necessarily endorsing it until he was sure how it was going to turn out.
1: You wrote that when I think it was Congressman or Senator Kennedy visited San Francisco and he met a black dentist, he said something like, Todd, I don't know if I know five people uh, of color that I could have a conversation like I'm having with you.
0: Yes and in, and in, indeed, I mean the only other black people he knew besides uh, the servants were the leaders of the civil rights movement itself, Martin Luther King, Roy Wilkins. Um, people like that, whom he met, you know, in political circles because they were pressing for uh, new laws. Uh, He did not have uh, anything like a kind of wide circle of black acquaintances, black intellectuals, writers, artists, nothing like that. And his life had, in in, in many ways, never been touched by race. There's no record of his ever having visited the South until he was 1957? No. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think a, a little bit earlier, but well into his adulthood and certainly never as a young person. Uh, he was in Charleston uh, in, in the Navy service for a while, but the deep south, Mississippi, Alabama, and all that, uh, no record of his ever, having ever gone there until he was well into adulthood.
1: We're going to touch on so many of the other characters in An Idea Whose Time Has Come, but to give context, I think, to the maybe 20 years leading up to Kennedy, uh, one person who did have intimate Uh, knowledge of and engagement with the civil rights issue was Hubert Humphrey, the senator uh, from Minnesota, and I want to hear a little bit of his uh, speech at the 1948 Democratic Convention.
0: I'm sorry that the microphones are in your way, but they have to be where they are because I've got to be able to see what I'm doing. A young Minnesota liberal now, you tell us what happened upstairs. pushed through a platform plank that signaled the stirrings of the civil rights movement. We have always believed in, and we continue to express our belief in, the right of every individual regardless of race, color, or creed, the right to, to live, to work, to vote, and full and equal protection of the laws on the basis of equality for all people as under the rights of our Constitution. Even as Truman embraced it, he acknowledged the cost. Everybody knows that I recommended to the Congress a civil rights program. I did so because I believe it to be my duty under the Constitution. Some of the members of my own party disagree with me violently on this matter.
1: Todd Purdom, not much happened between Truman's appearance in 1948 and the first Civil Rights Act in 1957.
0: No, I mean, the one important thing that happened, hugely important, was the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education. But what people forget is that the phrase all deliberate speed was really chosen by the court not to mean quickly, but slowly, as in deliberation, as in taking your time. And, of course, states all over the South had not moved to enforce that order. In any, in any real way. In fact, they'd gone the reverse. They'd created segregated academies, they'd closed their public school systems rather than integrate them. So things were really pretty stuck. And in fact, as 1963 dawned, it was awkward for president kennedy to figure out how to celebrate the centennial of the emancipation proclamation because it was quite clear that the work of the civil war was in in so many ways really unfinished and he did not want to risk jeopardizing other parts of his legislative agenda by pushing too hard for civil rights because the, in those days the people who controlled the congress were the southern bulls the committee chairman in both houses and they were adamant segregationists and opposed to civil rights
1: i can just imagine myself todd uh, in Pierre Salinger's shoes that day that the Emancipation Proclamation was being celebrated elsewhere in Washington, and the Kennedy uh, White House is going to have an event to honor it, but they really have to do it in secret, and Pierre is part of that duplicity.
0: Yes, they told they, he downplayed it with the white press, said it's not a big event. They told the guests to come by uh, the Southwest Gate so they wouldn't be seen coming into the front of the White House. Uh, but for the black press, it was a milestone event, 800 people, 800 black uh, civic and social and artistic leaders, the largest such gathering ever uh, under the president's roof. And it got wide play in the black press and almost no attention in the white press. Uh, so it was one of those things where, yes, uh, you know, Pierre Salinger often had to uh, kind of work a double game.
1: Some of these other double games that you put in uh, a, an idea whose time has come, two presidents, two parties, and the battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, they play out in- so interestingly, Todd, between 1961 and 1963, and we can go through them piece by piece, but James Farmer and the Freedom Riders and, and the... Uh, Bob Kennedy's use of his deputy John Siegenthaler taking off his journalist hat and going in the service of the Justice Department down to Alabama to deal with Governor Patterson. Uh, the Freedom Riders were not something that uh, the Kennedy brothers really wanted to have on the stage when, he, when John Kennedy was trying to figure out how to deal with Nikita Khrushchev.
0: No, uh, President Kennedy was very worried about the whole problem as it concerned an international black eye in the Cold War. Uh, the Russians loved the the idea that we couldn't get our own house in order and that if we were criticizing their records on human rights and other questions, that we had a glaring you know, examples of uh, human rights violations here in our own country. Uh, one of the problems he faced early in his administration was the diplomats from newly independent African nations who were having trouble on the highways between New York and Washington when they'd go up to the U.N. They were being harassed, in some cases actually physically manhandled by motel and restaurant owners who wouldn't serve them. And uh, Kennedy was upset about this and he wanted to get it fixed, but sometimes he seemed just as aggravated at the diplomats as he did at the uh, merchants, and he told his chief of protocol, "Uh, tell those diplomats I wouldn't think of driving to Washington. Tell them to fly. (laughs) Yeah,
1: And then James Farmer organizes the, the Freedom Riders and uh, the Bob Kennedy essentially doesn't want anything to do with Farmer after they deal with that issue uh, down in Alabama. They, Bob Kennedy won't even appear at an event with him at the Aspen Institute.
0: Yes, no. I mean, the, the Kennedys were both wary of being too closely allied with the organized civil rights groups, which were seen at that time by a large segment of the public as, you know, rabble rouser, difficult people. Uh, we now, you know, Martin Luther King has been so canonized and, in some senses, sanitized, and he's, uh, you know, there's a national holiday in his honor. Uh, but it, so it's hard in some ways maybe for readers to remember just how controversial a figure he was at the time. Uh, at one point President Kennedy said having him come here would be like having Marx come to the White House and he, he meant Carl not Groucho.
1: And then. Todd Purdom in 1962, uh, James Meredith tries to enroll in the University of Mississippi. It's another piece of theater with another governor. Uh, governor Ross Barnett is a little bit easier to deal with than Governor Patterson. But these theatrical ideas, Todd, of saying, I will yield to federal marshals uh, if they pull guns But then it's a matter of how many guns get pulled.
0: Yes, yes. It foundered on all kinds of, uh, as you say, polyoptics. And and in the end of the day, uh, their ace card against Governor Barnett was that they had been secretly taping all their conversations with him. And they threatened to release transcripts of these conversations showing just what a bargainer he had been. And, of course, we now know that the Kennedy and Johnson taping systems came to light only during Watergate when uh, when suddenly was revealed that prior presidents had also taped conversations in the Oval Office and in President Kennedy's case in the Cabinet Room. And I have such ambivalent feelings about this practice because obviously it was totally violated the privacy of people who did not know they were being taped. But as a historical record, these tapes and the and the transcripts made from them are absolutely priceless resources because you can literally hear the tension, the anger, the humor, the the worry in the president's voice, both Kennedy and Johnson. and, and there's just nothing like it in terms of putting you there in the room.
1: That's why I think there'll be some very interesting at some whenever they're disclosed the White House TV, sort of B-roll before these bilateral events that you and I always used to uh, scrum into with President Clinton because uh, it was during those moments that the cameras were rolling and and sort of asides were said, but we won't know about them for many years. Yes, yes. Um, One more event leading up to 1963 uh, was uh, was Birmingham in April of 1963. This is Bull Connor and the dogs, and this is the moment that... uh, President Kennedy says, I'm president of the United States. And that was a terrible picture that day. And this is when Martin Luther King is is put in is arrested uh, yet again and writes his letter from a Birmingham jail, which I heard performed in uh, performance art by Anna Devere Smith last summer. But it's really an amazing treatise. And and yet King was sort of managed to get out of jail through the auspices of the Kennedys and Nelson Rockefeller.
0: Well, yes, I mean, and, and especially the children and other young people who've been arrested, they needed bail money. And Nelson Rockefeller arranged to uh, give a, a loan of a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash in the bowels of the Chase Manhattan Bank one Saturday morning to one of Dr. King's aides, Clarence Jones, who had to sign a note uh, promising to repay it. And uh, it was an interesting time because, you know, Governor Rockefeller, obviously a Republican. Uh, for much of the hundred years since the Civil War, the Republicans had really taken very seriously their role as the party of Lincoln. And to the degree that civil rights was a real issue for either party, it was largely seen as a Republican issue. And
1: then leading up then, Todd Purdom, to June 1963, the president realizes that he's got to address this and has to move legislation forward. I want to hear a little bit of his Oval Office address on June 11th, 1963. One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. Todd, Ted Sorensen was scrambling to put that speech together. President Kennedy was fidgety in the Oval Office, set that scene and what led up to it, and then what happened two weeks later with the introduction of H.R. 7152.
0: Well, was quite a dramatic moment. Only the day before, remember, the president had made his famous speech at American University in which he challenged the world to think differently about peace. And he challenged the Soviet Union to sort of take a step back in the Cold War. Um, and he memorably said, we, you know, we all at the end of the day, we all inhabit the same small planet. So Sorensen had been focusing on that speech for weeks. And um, the reason Kennedy made the speech he did on, on June 11th is because that morning, Nicholas Katzenbach, the deputy attorney general, had presided over the peace integration of the University of Alabama with uh, uh, Sharon Malone and James Hood, and of course Sharon Malone's sister, uh, I'm I'm sorry, Vivian Malone and, and James Hood, and Vivian's sister, Sharon Malone, is now Mrs. Eric Holder, the Attorney General's wife all these years later. But in any case, because the integration was peaceful, most of Kennedy's advisors thought he didn't need to make a speech the way he had uh, on some other occasions like the riots at Ole Miss. But he felt it was time to, to, in fact, precisely because it was a peaceful moment, it was time to take a stand. So in the frantic hours leading up to the speech, Ted Sorensen was putting together drafts. His secretary was typing them as fast as she could, giving them to the president basically a page at a time. The president and his brother were in the cabinet room next door to the Oval Office scribbling some notes. And when the president sat down in front of the cameras, the speech was still not finished. And in, in fact, the whole last two and a half, nearly three minutes, he ad-libbed it alive on national television. Now, you know, your boss, President Clinton, famously had to vamp speech. when the, yeah, the teleprompter broke. But he didn't go up to Capitol Hill knowing the speech was unfinished. I mean, that's really remarkable to me. One of the most important speeches of his presidency. And it wasn't even completely done before he went on the air.
1: And then, Todd, the next few weeks are so critical. Uh, Just after that, uh, Medgar Evers is assassinated. Hear a little bit of that from June 12th, 1963.
0: Fifteen minutes past midnight, Evers got out of his car beside his home in a Negro residential area. In a vacant lot about 40 yards away, a sniper fired a single shot from a high-powered rifle at Evers' silhouette. The bullet hit him in the back, crashed through his body, through a window into the house. He died within an hour at a Jackson hospital. City detectives believe the fatal shot was fired from this sweetgum tree. They have found a rifle in the bushes, which they think is the murder weapon. They say they also have other clues. Mayor Allen Thompson cut short a Florida vacation and rushed back to City Hall, where he made this statement. The city of Jackson offers $5,000 reward to anyone who gives evidence leading to the arrest and the conviction of the guilty.
1: $5,000 reward, Todd. Uh, not a lot, even even in that day, to uh, to find evidence about uh, this assassination. What then gets put into uh, the civil rights bill, H.R. 7152, and, and why is it put in?
0: Well, you know, as you point out, Josh, one of the things I had not really realized until I began my research was just how these events were cascading so quickly on top of each other that four hours after the speech, Medgar Evers is killed. Then basically... Two weeks later, 10 days later, the president sends the bill up to the hill, and the basic provisions are to strengthen the voting rights uh, uh, provisions, to uh, have a, a regulation of federal elections, uh, not state elections, but to make sure that in federal elections certain standards are upheld, uh, access to the ballot. The second, uh, the second section of the bill is really the heart, the emotional heart of the bill. It's, it's the move to desegregate public accommodations, lunch counters, motels, hotels, restaurants, things like that. Um, then another important section was to allow the cutoff of federal funds to any state or local programs that discriminated and finally there was a pretty weak provision for creating a new Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to oversee dis- uh, to uh, regulate and and prohibit discrimination uh, by federal contractors and so forth. But it lacked the enforcement teeth that the civil rights advocates really wanted. So many people, many liberals, many civil rights advocates reacted to the president's bill with a great deal of skepticism, thinking it wasn't nearly as strong as it needed to be for the times. And that's, in fact, part of why the organizers of the March on Washington decided to go forward, was to pressure the administration, the Congress to to step up and and have a stronger bill. And let's hear a little bit of
1: both Uh, those iconic words from the March on Washington, and then, importantly, how the White House reacts. I have a dream today. That year, 1963, even President Kennedy addressed the nation on TV, boldly supporting civil rights. The heart
0: of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities.
1: So, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, the administration, how did they sort of manage the messages or do the best they can to shape the message coming from the Lincoln Memorial?
0: Well, at first, they were very worried about the fact of the march, and they tried to persuade people to call it off. When that wasn't going to happen, then they basically determined, at least as a concerned the government aspects of it to take it over and make sure that it was well organized and make sure that there was no violence and make sure that it was exceedingly well-planned and logistics worked well. When the sound system was sabotaged at the last minute, the Army Corps of Engineers, Signal Corps, built it uh, again overnight, uh, got it up and running, But they had an official from the Justice Department, a wonderful man named John Riley, who died a couple years ago. He was married to Margaret Warner of the PBS NewsHour. And he was in charge of the Office of U.S. Attorneys, but on that day is his job to monitor the speeches. And if anything got too hot, if if the rhetoric got too... aggressive, he was supposed to turn off the microphone and put on a 78 record of the great gospel singer Mahalia Jackson singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. So the, the degree to which the administration was involved in stage managing this was actually of, of some concern to the civil rights groups, people like John Lewis and others who were helping organize the march. They, they resented the fact that the administration was getting in there, but, but in fact, uh, the administration's participation really probably did help uh, Assured that it was a success. There was not a speck of violence. There was nothing to mar the day. And uh, President Kennedy greeted King in the White House by saying that he too had a dream.
1: Yeah. And then that dream never comes to fruition, of course, Todd, because of November 22nd, 1963, uh, where we were reminded in such vivid detail last year by Robert Caro's book, Passage of Power, uh, of exactly what happened in Dallas. And so fascinatingly, the weeks and months that followed as President Johnson uh, quickly maneuvered to establish himself as the unelected president of the United States. I want to hear one of those phone calls that he made uh, in, those, in those first few weeks, this one to Martin Luther King.
0: Well, I'm going to support them all, and you can count on that, and I'm going to do my best to get other men to do likewise, and I'll have to have y'all's help. I never needed more than I do now well
1: you know you have
0: it and just feel free to call on us for anything thank you so much martin all right call me when you call. Uh, the i sure will call me when you're down here next time i certainly will but let's get together and, and any suggestions you got bring them in fine i certainly will do that thank you so much
1: thank
0: you oh todd the
1: lbj treatment on over the phone
0: Yes, indeed. And, of course, Martin Luther King had not been invited to John Kennedy's funeral, but he came anyway, and LBJ happened to see something that he'd said on television was supportive, and he called him, I believe that may be the call you just played, he called him to thank him for that, commiserated with him about what a terrible situation he was in trying to lead the country in this hour of grief with all these things on his plate. And the poignant part is, during this period, President Johnson was actually, you know, he and Martin Luther King were allied. Their interests were aligned on this question of the bill. And by the end of his time in office and by the end of Dr. King's life, they were really sort of permanently estranged, uh, mostly over King's uh, sharp criticism of the war in Vietnam. But one of the things about the passage of the Civil Rights Act that was most striking to me is that it really was kind of both the greatest achievement and the high mark of consensus on questions of race that the country has ever known in modern times. And in a strange way, although the bill changed the country forever, made the modern America we know now, it was also the end of a sort of era of uh, cooperation. And as the 60s wore on, the consensus fractured and uh, and, uh the mood darkened, and the divisions increased and There was never again the sort of same feeling of uh, common purpose that there was during the during the march on Washington and the passage of this bill
1: so President Johnson uh goes up to Congress, gives the speech to the joint uh, to the joint session to say, it "Is now time to write this legislation into the books of law and now let's get into Todd Purdom, you know some of the players who are actually going to have to play a role in that and i I noted uh so fascinatingly that when you look at the final votes for passage in the Senate, Republicans uh, as per capita were so much more influential through I think they only had 33 senators and only seven voted against and it was pushing the uh, pushing the uh, dealing against the Democratic Southern bloc that uh, allowed this uh, monumental passage to go through. But back to those final days of 63 and into 64, how are the two sides coalescing?
0: Well, the issue at the end of 1963 was that the bill had passed the House Judiciary Committee only after some last-minute emergency intervention by uh, President Kennedy and his brother, because the, the Democrats on that committee had initially were prepared to pass a bill that was way too uh, liberal and that would have blown apart uh, probably in the full House and certainly in the Senate. So with the help of some Republican allies, they scaled the back of bill a bit to make it more palatable, And but the challenge was on the day of the assassination, the bill was hung up in the House Rules Committee, whose chairman, Howard Smith, was a horrible segregationist from Virginia, terrible, unrepentant racist. And he had announced his intention, maybe let it sit there for, you know, till hell froze over. So the challenge for President Johnson was to get it out of the Rules Committee and onto the House floor. And there were only so many procedural ways to do that. But one of the ways was to get a vote of 218 members, half the House, to to force the bill onto the floor through something known as a discharge petition. It was a very rare move, not liked by the party establishment of either side because it usurped the authority of chairman. And in those days, chairman's authority, their, their writ was, you know, law. Uh, but Johnson began to help organizing an effort to, to get a discharge petition, and that put pressure on members. And in the end, what happened was that the members of the Judiciary Committee itself, including the Repo- the Rules Committee itself, including the Republicans, Uh, put pressure on Chairman Smith to hold a hearing and move the bill along. And so as the winter of 1964 began, that's what happened. And then by February, by early February, the bill, after about 10 days of debate, uh, passed the House of Representatives by an overwhelming bipartisan margin. And... uh, and, and, and then the stage was set past 290 to 130. And then the stage was set for the Senate, where the big challenge was always going to be overcoming the, the southerners' filibuster and cutting off debate.
1: And one other sort of hero of passage of the civil rights bill uh, that you and I talked about earlier uh, is that history has largely forgotten, soon to be remembered uh, through your book, uh, An Idea Whose Time Has Come, is this Ohio congressman, William McCullough.
0: Yes, he was the ranking member ranking Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. He was from West Central Ohio, a small town known as called Piqua. He was a complete rock rib conservative, but he was also a a strong, strong supporter of civil rights. He was descended from pre-Civil War abolitionists. And he'd been distraught in 1957 and 1960 when the civil rights bills had been watered down by Lyndon Johnson and others so they could pass in the Senate. And he told the Kennedy administration that if they backed a strong bill and gave the Republicans equal credit for it, he would stand by them. He would rally the support of House Republicans to pass the bill. And that, in fact, set the strategy that both the Kennedy and Johnson White Houses had to follow of doing something that had never been done successfully before, and that was to break a filibuster on civil rights. So it's really remarkable that this one man, whose district is now represented, by the way, by John Boehner, um, would be so willing to stick his own neck out on the line. His his own constituency, his own district was less than 3% black. He just believed it was the right thing to do. And so he set the whole tone for the debate uh, in the House, and he brought along the Republican Caucus with him.
1: Fascinatingly, even after President Kennedy's death, uh, former First Lady Jackie Kennedy remembers enough of McCullough's role to reach out to him personally.
0: Yes, when he retired from Congress in 1972, when she got word in 1971 that he'd not be running uh, again, she wrote him a remarkable three-page handwritten, very emotional letter from aboard the yacht Christina, uh, thanking him and saying that she, that she knew that he more than probably any other single person was responsible for this, and in the last weeks of President Kennedy's life, it had given him great comfort to have the support of somebody like Congressman McCullough, who disagreed with him on so many issues, fiscal and other issues, but who was helping him on this crucial issue, uh, frankly against the interests of his own party. It would have been more politically expedient for the Republicans to withhold their cooperation and stick it to the Democrats, who, as you pointed out, could not pass a bill on their own. So,
1: tell us about this 37-day of the filibuster I mean we saw filibuster last fall sort of a a one-day affair by Ted Cruz uh, and and we and we haven't seen this kind in so long but 37 days Todd Purdom
0: yes I mean everything sort of ground to a halt it often wasn't very dramatic in fact because uh, there only have to be three or four or five southerners on the floor and then the northerners had to field speakers to keep talking keep defending their arguments keep pushing their case but it it, it really the, the business of the senate ground completely to a halt and it was a, a remarkable time and it was a war of attrition what hubert humphrey who was the floor manager of the bill for the uh, democrats uh, hoped would happen is that by letting the opponents of civil rights have their say They'd eventually wear them down. The whole kind of uh, dynamic of the energy would change in an almost sort of jiu-jitsu way, and uh, suddenly the pro-civil rights forces would have the advantage and the southerners would feel they'd have to give up. I think it was also part of the strategy that if the southerners had a long day of debate, I mean a long many weeks and, and days of debate, they could go back to their constituents and say, we gave it our best shot. A little bit the way like John Boehner last fall when he let the House Republicans, you know, drive him over the cliff and have shut down the government. It was a way to say to them, see, you, look, you, you've done this and look what you've got for it, which is nothing. And I think the Southerners like Dick Russell and others from um, in the in the Senate who were against civil rights could then go back to their constituents and say, we fought the good fight and we lost fair and square and now we have to pick up and move on.
1: So in a, in those weeks of around april 1964 while that action is happening up on the hill you have this continuing relationship to evolve between the president and the attorney general i want to hear a little bit of a phone conversation between uh... lyndon johnson and bob kennedy the impression he gave was that uh... you know he really wants to
0: work it out and wants to get the thing everybody so i think that uh... No, I, think I just think if we don't pass it, I'm getting awfully frightened, if we don't pass it to the uh, next 30-40 days, I'm afraid these people are going to hurt it pretty bad. Yeah. Aren't but you? I, yes, I am. On the other hand, uh, the pressure gets greater on certain not to hold out. You know, what's going on now, the filibuster. I tried to put a little of it on tonight. Yeah. Did you? With everybody I talked to out here. Yeah. I think that's good. I think they can feel some of it, maybe in a few days how important it
1: is go ahead. Todd Purdom, we always know about Lyndon Johnson, the Johnson treatment, and how aggressively he could lobby, but... You sort of take a, a different tack in the way you analyze the way Johnson managed both sort of the tentacles of his relationships, Kennedy, the Justice Department, the senators on the Hill. Not as much as of an aggressive force as we might have thought the way Brian Cranston would play him.
0: Well, there were two things at work. One was Johnson was not sure the bill would pass. And if it was going to fail, he didn't want to take sole responsibility for its failure. So he went out of his way to say, I'm doing what the Justice Department tells me. I'm following their strategy. They're taking the lead. This is. Is their baby and I'll back them up all the way but I'm not going to take the lead That was partly strategic, and it was partly political. The other reality that he knew he faced was that as a former senator and a former Senate majority leader, if he himself as president had gotten too deeply involved in the nitty-gritty of the lobbying and the horse trading for the bill, it would have been resented, and it would have backfired, because early in his time as vice president, he tried to get the right to continue to preside over the Senate Democratic Caucus, and uh, his colleagues did not go for that at all. They believed very strongly in the separation of powers and in the distinct role that the president and the White House had versus the one the Congress did. So I think in some ways the most remarkable thing LBJ did during all this period was restrain himself. It must have taken such an act of will. You can see in the tapes how violently he disagreed with what uh, Hubert Humphrey and Mike Mansfield, the Senate Democratic leader, were doing. He wanted them to hold round-the-clock sessions and make the senators show up in their pajamas. He wanted them to try to exhaust the Southerners. And they simply refused to do that. First of all, they were afraid that might literally kill some of the older members. And secondly, they felt, as I said earlier, that the strategy of letting the Southerners have their day would ultimately redound to the pro-civil rights forces advantage by by letting them exhaust their arguments and, and finally give in. And in fact, that's just what happened. But I mean, I think I think LBJ deserves every bit of credit that he's gotten for the civil rights bill. But it's perversely, it's not because of the the things we typically think of. It's not because of him backing people against the wall and threatening them and so forth. It's partly because he exercised such iron control and he never, ever wavered. He never indicated he was willing to make a deal or horse trade. He kept saying we have to pass the strong bill as it is. No compromises no shortcuts, no wheeling, no dealing, and and that was a big contribution, certainly.
1: And yet he also said at some point that I will oppose
0: every amendment until I sign it. Yes, it's a, one of my favorite quotes. He's like, <laughs> I'm against these amendments, going to be against them right up to the moment I sign them. And uh, that's another way of saying nothing is final till it's final. And one of the great lessons of this bill was that, frankly, much of it, much of the compromise in the Senate between Senator Dirksen, the Republican leader from Illinois, and the Democrats, was hashed out in private over drinks, in a back room, out of the light of day, so people could test their positions, they could take stands that didn't have to be final. They didn't have to posture for the C-SPAN cameras or meet the press. They didn't have to have their talking points all lined up perfectly. They could, you know, test out an idea, see how it worked, see if anybody'd buy it. They could operate in the confidence that they knew that their negotiations would sort of stay within the lodge, as it were. In fact, Dirksen had a room in his office the back of his office, a fully equipped bar called the Twilight Lodge, where there was a clock on the wall and every numeral on the clock was five, so it was always perfectly appropriate time for a drink.
1: That's so cool. I mean, let's hear a little bit of uh, that line of the Senate, because he deserves such credit for the passage of, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, not talking about this matter uh, per se, but as you write in the book, his, his manner and his methods of persuasion and his voice was so compelling, Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois. Senator Dirksen, could you tell me, what is the difference between a Republican and a Democrat?
0: I'm afraid we'd have to devote the whole evening to it. But perhaps I I could highlight one or two things. One, of course, is the insistence on the part of Republicans that uh, we balance up our fiscal affairs to make sure that we're going to have a solvent country. I think, generally speaking, our friends on the other side of the aisle are prone to spend money and go in for new activities when it's rather doubtful whether or not it is good for the country and for the interests of the people.
1: Todd Purdom, Everett Dirksen, what what was the nickname he had for that voice?
0: He was called the Wizard of Ooze, uh, and he kept his his vocal cords in shape by gargling daily with Pond's cold cream mixed with water, which he then swallowed. Uh, and at times it seemed he lived on mailox and bourbon, so uh, it's a remarkable—he won a Grammy, uh, a spoken word Grammy for his record a few years after the bill called Gallant Men, which I had as a young boy growing up in Illinois, by the way, uh, and he recites a bunch of patriotic st- songs and s- stories and poems, and, and he really did. He used to practice speech-making in front of his family's cows growing up <laughs> in Peak in Illinois.
1: What were these what was the set of sort of mini compromises or concessions that he would tell his caucus that he had wrangled uh, in order to get them to think that he was doing right back in the uh, in the lodge over bourbon.
0: Well, first of all, he wanted a large numerical number of changes, most of which were not substantive. So he just wanted to say, I've made 85 changes. So there were little changes of language, technical matters. And Nick Katzenbach, the Deputy Attorney General, told me that the challenge was to make sure that Dirksen had firmly agreed to these things before so much bourbon had been consumed that he wouldn't remember the next morning what he'd agreed to the night before, because Justice Department lawyers could rewrite a section once without changing its meaning, but to rewrite it a second time was much harder. Uh, On a more serious note, the changes he wanted were ones that uh, favored states like his own state of Illinois, which already had, for example, strong anti-discrimination laws. And he did not want northern states that had such statutes on the books to be punished or to face a federal bureaucracy that would overlap their own. He wanted to give state employment agencies, for example, uh, a first crack at resolving cases of uh, alleged employment discrimination before the federal government stepped in. And this made the bill more appealing to his fellow Midwesterners Uh, But as the Southerners correctly realized, it also made the bill more explicitly targeted toward legal segregation in the South as opposed to the de facto segregation that, of course, sadly continues to exist in much of the North today.
1: Debate continues from... Uh, During the spring of 1964 until June 19th, the Senate approves the revised uh, bill by a vote of 73 to 27. It's strengthened in many ways, you write. And yet uh, two days later, again, this cascade of events, uh, it's the murder of Goodman, Schwerny, and Cheney uh, in uh, Mississippi. Hear a little bit of the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, in a bit of a stakeout talking about what happened.
0: Uh, Of course, in the case of this kind, as you gentlemen who cover these kind of cases know, or any cases dealing with criminal activities know, sometimes they break quickly and suddenly. Other times it's a prolonged effort. This may be a prolonged effort, but it will be continued until it is solved, until we find the bodies of those three men that have disappeared and the persons who may be responsible for the disappearance.
1: What was Hoover's role in all this, both before uh, Kennedy's assassination and through 64?
0: So Hoover was really stoking the fires. He was feeding the Kennedys sort of effectively disinformation about Martin Luther King. He was bugging and and keeping Martin Luther King on tender hooks with his uh, surveillance. And he was deeply skeptical. He'd grown up in the District of Columbia, was himself you know, deeply skeptical about integration. And he was basically playing a kind of a nasty game throughout by keeping, as he always did, the secrets and selectively leaking just enough information to, uh, to the administration to make them very worried about Martin Luther King.
1: Was there any element of the murders in Mississippi that helped get pa- this passage over the goal line, or was it basically on separate tracks?
0: No, I think it was on a separate track, and by then it was foreordained. Once the filibuster had been broken in the Senate, it was a foregone conclusion that it would eventually pass the House. Uh, which it did on July 2nd, and the president signed the bill that night. So, well, was... well, there
1: was polyoptics, though, about the timing of when he would actually sign the bill. Claire yes. Bruce Luce didn't want him to do it on uh, on July 4th. Bobby Kennedy didn't want it before the weekend because he thought there might be riots. Uh, all the stagecraft of when he would sign a bill and how uh, was a major issue, wasn't it?
0: Yes, no, it really was. And as you say, Mrs. Luce, uh, former congresswoman from Connecticut, her husband was the founder of Time Life. She called the president on the morning of July 2nd and said she just heard an appalling rumor that he might sign the bill on the 4th of July, and she thought that was such a terrible idea. He assured her that, no, he intended to sign it as soon as he got it, but then Attorney General called and said, you might want to wait until after the long 4th of July weekend because we don't want to have Negroes running in every hotel in the South and testing out this law and shooting off firecrackers and implicitly drinking and so forth. So Johnson worried quite a and he wanted to have a primetime speech, and the network said, oh, no, you'll get a better audience at... Uh, at um, you know, 645. And he knew perfectly well as the owner of a television station in Austin that that was not true. He just said to his press secretary, George Reedy, they don't want to give up that night prime time.
1: Well, let's let's hear a little bit of that speech that night, July 2nd, 1964. Lyndon Johnson in the East Room about to sign the legislation with 70 pens.
0: My fellow Americans, I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I want to take this
1: occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. One hundred
0: and eighty-eight years ago this week, a small band of valiant men began a long struggle for freedom. They pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, not only to found a nation, but to forge an ideal of freedom.
1: Todd Purdom, in some ways you say it was the high watermark of uh, bipartisanship toward civil rights issues, uh, the lasting legacy of the Civil Rights Act of 1964.
0: Well, it created the country we live in today. I mean, our children couldn't imagine a world in which there were separate water fountains and restrooms marked black and white, in which black people could not go sit at lunch counters or ride in any place they wanted in a bus. Um... So in that sense, it succeeded marvelously and it was a, it was basically accepted in large measure very quickly throughout the country and by December the Supreme Court had upheld the central provision on the public accommodation section but of course we see that it's still debated and as recently as the 2012 campaign uh, Rand Paul in Kentucky uh, wondered aloud whether the public accommodation section was constitutional and whether it was really right to intrude on private property rights by saying store owners business owners had to serve blacks and whites alike so the debate goes on. Uh, slavery was our country's original sin, and resolving the questions of race and racial justice remains, I suppose, our our greatest uh, challenge as a country. Uh, but this was certainly one moment when, for at least uh, you know, at least a few months or weeks, uh, an extraordinary collection of people came together to do the right thing. And uh, it's it's been really fun to reexamine that time.
1: Todd Purdom, the book is an idea whose time has come. Two presidents, two parties, and the battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. My old friend of so many years, it was great to see you last week and it is great to see this book in print. Congratulations. Thanks so much, Josh. It It's a real pleasure being here.
0: Record that, Jim. Bet. Bet.
1: That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM channel 124 POTUS, Man. Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.